Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 this morning. We're going to take a bit of a diversion from our study in the book of Acts for a couple of weeks. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, a Reformation theme this morning. And then next week I want to uh, give my kind of my annual election sermon uh, in light of the elections on the following Tuesday. So we'll address these things which we normally do each year. Uh, and we'll look at uh, the Word of God and, and uh, gain guidance from what uh, the Scriptures tell us concerning the election. So that'll be next week, Lord willing. This morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 And I'd like to start reading in verse 11. I'll read 11 through verse 13. And this this will be our theme this morning on uh, the sufficiency of the death of Christ for our sins. Hebrews chapter 10, reading the inspired Word of God, starting in verse 11. Please hear God's Word. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And may God bless the reading of his word. One of the great uh, incredible blessings that God poured out upon us in the Protestant Reformation is that they recovered the biblical gospel which had basically been buried under a mountain of debris by Roman Catholicism. And we normally summarize the great recoveries that were made uh, by the grace of God through the reformers in the five solas. And this morning, what I'd like to focus on is one of them, which we say uh, in Latin, solus Christus, or Christ alone. And basically what the reformers, as they went back to the Word of God, comparing it with what was being taught by the Catholic Church, realized that they were not teaching Christ alone for salvation. Christ was necessary, but He was not sufficient. You needed to add a lot of things to Christ's death in order to be saved. Solus Christus means Christ alone. We are saved by Christ's sacrifice alone. Christ's death on the cross for our sins alone. Without adding anything to it. Without adding our works. Without adding our righteousness. Christ alone. And that's what the Spirit of God retaught them as they began to study the Word of God. So we're very thankful for the Protestant Reformation. We're thankful to God for raising up men, opening their eyes to see the Gospel again that had been again uh, hidden in the darkness in so many ways. And Christ's work on the cross fully satisfied the justice of God. There's nothing else for us to add to it. You don't add anything. We can't add anything to it. We must learn to trust and rest totally and completely in Christ's sacrifice, His finished work on the cross for our salvation. As one of our old hymns say, Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Well, as we begin to look at this, I want to examine Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, in light of the context, briefly, and then look and see what uh, verse 12 actually is teaching, and then compare it with what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching in the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other Reformers. So let's begin by looking again at verse 12. I'll just read it to remind you. 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, in the context of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who the author is. We know as a man, but we don't know exactly who wrote the book. At least I, I don't know. Some would say, Paul, I don't think Paul could have written it for various reasons. I won't get into that. But if you go back to chapter 10, verse 1, I want to at least establish some of the things that the author is trying to do. There are many of these uh, Jewish believers that were being tempted to go back under the law, go back into Judaism, to trust in the work of the Old Testament priests and their sacrifices for their salvation. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. All of that is pointing forward to Christ. Don't go back under the law. Don't look to the animal sacrifices. They cannot save you. They were pointing forward to the Lamb of God who can, Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, he begins to say, chapter 10 of Hebrews, for the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. If you go back under the shadow, you're going backwards. That won't save you. He adds in verse 2, Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have the consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sins. So he emphasizes, that's why those sacrifices in the Old Testament had to repeated, be repeated constantly, year after year, all the time. They had to be repeated in verse 1. And again in verse 3, these sacrifices, there's a constant reminder of sins year by year by year. They can't take away your sins because they're animals. Animals can't represent humans. It's not a fair trade. It's not a good exchange. They don't represent our nature. An animal can't take away. He can only point forward to the God-man who can save us. But the animals cannot take away our sin. Their blood cannot cover the sin of a human because they're not human. They're an animal. That's why neither animals nor angels can save us. It has to be someone who shares our nature, which Jesus Christ certainly does. So the blood of the animals, in verse 4, the author says, it's impossible for them to take away sin. can't be done. Simply can't do it. When the animal died, the atonement that it made merely cleansed them of ceremonial uncleanness, but it really can't take away the guilt and the condemnation of their sin. It can make them clean in man's eyes or in a certain ceremonial sense, but it can't take away their sin. They were merely designed to point forward to Jesus Christ. And then in verses 5, through verse 10, the author says, okay, he's comparing now the bodies of animals that cannot save you with a body, a human nature, a human body given to the Son of God which can take away our sins. So in verses 5 through 10, he draws this incredible analogy. Start reading in verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, referring to the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. You've given Me a body, a human nature, a human body. And My body and My blood sacrificed on the cross can take away your sin. So you see the contrast, the picture that He's drawing. So He emphasizes that all the way down showing Christ came to do the will of the Father. And He can do what the Old Testament animal sacrifices could not do. And then we come back to verse 11 again. And He says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering 
Time after time. Time after time. Year after year. Every day of atonement. They have to go in. Stand, they're standing, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So why in the world are you Jewish believer being tempted to go back under the law and put your faith in an animal sacrifice? Put your faith in a, in a sinful priest and a whole priesthood and a whole system that cannot save you in and of itself. Trust Christ. The Lord has given to us the Lamb of God. Turn to Him. Put your faith completely in Him. He and He alone can take away our sins. So if you notice in verse 11 again, every priest, all of them, were standing. Their work was never done. It was never completed. They had to continue to stand. They had to continue to work because their sacrifices were never effectual. So they had to be repeated over and over again. So they had to stand repeatedly all the time because their work was never done. And this was something that had to be ongoing and repeated because again, it could not take away sin. It was a symbol that was continually pointing forward to Christ, but they had to be, it had to be repeated over and over again. It could not actually save. And then they offered the same sacrifices because nothing was new. The animals never changed. On the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest had to offer bulls for himself, his own sin, and goats for the people. They never, they never changed. They were the same type of animals. And as a result, of course, it could never take away sin. They were inferior by design. It's like paying, going to the bank and paying your mortgage with, with, uh, Wooden nickels or monopoly money. It just, it, it, it can't really pay your debt. They all pointed forward to Christ who alone could. So we see that, uh, he's building up this contrast and then he wants them to put their faith and confidence in Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. So again, he says in verse 12, But He, in contrast to all those Old Testament priests with all the same animal sacrifices that can never take away sin, in verse 12, but He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice. One did it. Never to be repeated. It only took one sacrifice. Jesus Christ was so precious in His person being fully God and fully sinless man. His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay the complete and full price for all of the sins of all of God's people. One and one only sacrifice. Not all the repeated sacrifices year after year. One and one only. And why did He die? It says in verse 12, one sacrifice for sins. And in the context of the book of Hebrews, it's to pay the full and total penalty for our sins. One sacrifice to pay the full penalty for our sins. That's the idea. And then notice it's for all time. This is the timing of it. That's why it doesn't need to be repeated once. So in the Mass, you don't have to keep repeating it. Like in the Roman Catholic Church, they keep repeating the sacrifice every, every Sunday. No. One sacrifice for all time. Never, never to be repeated. And then look at what He did. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why can He sit down? Because the work is done. His work is done. He's paid the price. Contrary to the Old Testament priests, they're always standing because their work was never done. But His work is totally done. So He sat down at the right hand of God to show that His work was completed. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, said on this, 
that a seated priest is guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. So that's what the Lord Jesus did. He sat down at the right hand of God, shows that He's worthy now of all authority and power and dominion and worship and glory. That He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He has sat down at the Father's right hand. Totally accepted by the Father. The sacrifice was accepted. It totally satisfied the Father. So now the Father rewarded Him for His completed work. And He's sitting at the Father's right hand. Job done. Now again, the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, were up against a system that did not believe that Christ was sufficient for our salvation. And this is... uh, So I want to give you a little background as to what they were dealing with. And the church has not changed, not officially... They still teach these things. But some of the things that they teach that indicate that Christ is not sufficient, Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient, are these. Number one, they teach the idea that righteousness is given, but righteousness is lost. And what they mean by that is that when a baby is born, according to the Roman Catholic Church, They will baptize the baby which removes the sin of Adam and imparts the gift of righteousness and grace to that baby. So they receive the gift of righteousness. However, as they start to grow, they start to sin. And as they start to sin, they lose that righteousness. Now, they either will commit what they call a mortal sin that leads to death, take you to hell, you lose your salvation, you lose, you go, you're going to go to hell, a mortal sin, a killing sin, which can be forgiven through penance, but you lose your salvation, or a venial sin, which merely weakens grace and corrupts it, and we lose some of the righteousness in the soul. It's like a Venial sin is like a disease in the body. It makes us sick. It makes us diseased. It weakens us. And that can also be restored through the sacraments. But you can have righteousness when you're baptized as an infant, but then you're going to lose it as you start to grow. You're going to start to sin. You're going to lose that righteousness. So we must restore that righteousness. We want to go to heaven. If you want to be saved, you got to restore that righteousness so that hopefully when you stand before God at the end, He will justify you based on your own righteousness. So you got to restore that righteousness. Well, how do you do that in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, that brings in the importance of the sacraments. The sacraments are basically a way that uh, the Roman Catholic who's committed sin, who's lost his righteousness, can regain it. And basically the sacraments are the gradual infusion of righteousness back into that sinner, which becomes the basis of their future justification. They're working to try to keep and maintain and build this righteousness so that when they stand before God, God will declare them righteous because they actually are righteous. They become righteous. And that's the whole system of the Roman Catholic view of salvation. The sacraments are necessary. They're not optional. So is Christ's death sufficient? No, 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 no. As a believer, you lose your righteousness and you've got to restore it through the sacraments, hopefully to to obtain enough so that you can be justified and go to heaven when you die. It's very much rooted in a works-based salvation. Catholic Church teaches the necessity of the sacraments says, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. 
Now that's exactly what the Protestant reformers were teaching. That we're justified by faith alone. Plus nothing. And the Catholic Church said that's anathema. So clearly they have a different understanding of what's required for salvation. It's not the same. Even though they hold to a lot of Orthodox theology. They hold to the Trinity. They hold to the deity of Christ. They hold to the virgin birth. They can be very sincere in their faith, but that doesn't save them. They clearly understand a different view of what's required for salvation. So our friends who are Roman Catholics, these are things I think that we can hopefully profitably interact with them to try to show them their need for trusting Christ alone for their salvation. Because they're immersed in an atmosphere where they absorb the contrary. Now there could be some in the Roman Catholic Church, hopefully there are, that don't understand all that the church teaches and has a simple faith in Christ for salvation. But the majority, they're absorbing this whole theology of works and merit-based righteousness. So, I don't think they have a good understanding of the Gospel to say the least. So the sacraments are part of the means through penance and taking the Mass that as you do that, you, you tap into this treasury of merit and you get more righteousness infused back into you. So this is your goal. You've got to continue to get more righteousness to replace the righteousness you're losing by your sin. And hopefully you're going to get enough so that God will let you into heaven without having to go to purgatory. And all this again is based upon you being involved faithfully and consistently in the sacraments. That is your work. That is your effort. That's your merit to obtain additional infusion of righteousness. Why do you need that? Because Christ is not sufficient. You need more than Christ. The necessity of the Mass is also a part of this. Penance is a part where they go and confess to the priest. But the Mass is a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ in a sacramental manner. Now, some of the Roman Catholics today will say it's a representation of it, but it's still a sacrifice by their own admission. For example, if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist that's the Lord's Supper, that's their Mass, are one single sacrifice. Now look at what they're saying. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass is one single sacrifice. They're calling it a sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered Himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner and this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Now that's a big word. You need to know what it means. Propitiatory means you remove God's wrath. It removes God's wrath. So this is what they believe about the Mass. So, you've got to participate in the Mass to get those sins forgiven. It's something you must do to earn enough righteousness so that hopefully you can go to heaven by your own personal righteousness. Infused, it's the, it's the righteousness of Christ and the saints infused in you, but it's, it becomes your righteousness at that point. And it's the result of you doing the sacraments, your works. Christ is not sufficient. So we fall back again on Hebrews 10.12. But He having offered how many sacrifices? One. Just one. So the re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass is totally unbiblical. He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. It's one sacrifice for all time. Never to be repeated again. And then he sat down because the work is done. But in the Mass, he is re-sacrificed over and over and over again. 
And participating in that becomes part of the way someone taps back into that righteousness so that hopefully he can merit it on the last day. Now contrary to that, and speaking of the, uh, the sacraments in general, they are essential for this gradual infusion of justifying grace. They're essential. You've got to replenish that grace. Because once you're baptized as a baby and you start growing, you start sinning, and now your righteousness is continually leaking out. It's like having a, a you know, about ten nails in your tire. And you fill it up and you drive about a block and it's flat again. It's constantly losing air like your soul is constantly losing righteousness. So if you have any hope of going to heaven, you've got to replenish that through the sacraments, through penance, through mass. It's got to be replenished. Now contrary to that, justification is a gift of God not earned or merited. Romans 3.24 says we're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which we have in Christ Jesus. We're told in Romans 3.28 that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So again, salvation is by grace. It's a gift. It's not something you work for or something that you merit or earn. It's given as a gift to sinners who turn to Christ and Christ alone. So you've got all these sacraments that are a part of the believer trying to earn and rebuild his righteousness through participating in the penance, mass, etc., etc. Trying to get righteous enough so he can go to heaven and not go to purgatory. Well, that brings up the whole concept of purgatory. Because purgatory is something else that the Catholics have taught and they still teach it. Purgatory is where souls go to be cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away their debt, according to Pope Paul VI. This is where our sins, which are not uh, expiated on this earth through sorrows and miseries and calamities of life, are expiated after death. In other words, if you don't have enough righteousness to get you to heaven, which very few do, have enough righteousness. The vast majority will go down to purgatory and there you will suffer the temporal punishments of your sins through fire and torments and you'll be purified. They're purifying punishments. And so you're down in purgatory. And this is what's taught in the Roman Catholic Church. Christ is not sufficient. you got to go and finish the process of, of being cleansed yourself in purgatory. So your suffering ultimately contributes to you going to heaven. Christ is not sufficient, like the Protestant reformers were taught by the Spirit of God. So the bad news is that uh, the vast majority do not have enough righteousness through sacraments, to get to heaven, so now they go down to purgatory. Purgatory is not taught in the Bible. It's one of the the false doctrines that's taught. If anyone deserved to go to purgatory, I would say, you know, the thief on the cross was probably a pretty good candidate. Here's a guy that lived his whole life probably as a thief, immoral, Unlawful kind of a guy, got arrested, he's a criminal, he's guilty. He's on the cross, he's actually insulting Christ with the other thief, and then something happens to him. Spirit of God moves on him, and he suddenly sees Christ for who he is, and he calls upon Christ, and the Lord Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, Why didn't he go to purgatory and suffer for a few thousand or tens of thousands of years? He should have. If purgatory was taught in the Bible, it's not taught in the Bible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Not absent from the body, spend a few gazillion years in purgatory and then with the Lord eventually. He didn't say that. To be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. 
He also said in Philippians 1, he desires to depart this life and be with Christ, immediately going into the presence of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Even in Christ's parable, the poor man, Lazarus, died and was immediately carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. No going to purgatory at all. So it's not something that's taught in the Bible. But it's part of that man-made system that says Christ is not sufficient You've got to suffer yourself to finish the process on your own so that you can end up in heaven. So this is the Roman Catholic view. It's a busy screen. There's a lot in it, I know. But let me just try to real quickly walk you through it. So you start with the baptism here. And that's when righteousness, S should be up there, is infused into the baby at baptism. Okay? But then they start living and they start sinning and they lose their righteousness. So the way to restore that righteousness, that personal righteousness, is through the sacraments. So you have penance, you have mass, penance and mass, penance and mass, all the way through your life, trying to stop up that leaky tire, trying to get more righteousness in there than you're losing so that hopefully when you stand before God and right when you're about to die, you get the last rites, and that's supposed to help you. Hopefully when you stand before God, God says, okay, you're righteous because of all that you've done and penance and mass, penance and mass, that you're righteous enough to where you can go straight to heaven. But again, the problem is a vast majority are not righteous enough. So they end up going down to purgatory. And you're there for an indefinite period of time until you suffer the physical, temporal punishments of your sins. And then when all that gets satisfied, then you get to go to heaven. And this is, this is adding a lot to the work of Christ. This is not Christ alone. This is not Christ is sufficient. This is Christ yeah, you need Christ, but you've got to do penance and mass and penance and mass and penance and mass, do all the sacraments of the church, last rites, and then probably still end up in purgatory for no telling how long before you can eventually get up. It's your works blended in because you don't have enough righteousness coming from Christ and the saints to earn your way. The reform view is quite different. So whenever you come to faith in Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you at that point in time. You're justified right then and there. You're declared righteous by God. And then the Christian life is just developing practical righteousness, which is an evidence of salvation. It doesn't contribute to your salvation. It is evidence of your salvation. So we engage in the means of grace. And then when we die, all believers go to heaven because you already have Christ's righteousness. And that's the righteousness that gets you to heaven. Not yours. Yours is always defective. Yours is always inferior. Your righteousness can never save you. Abandon it. Leave it. It's a titanic. Don't get on that ship. It's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Trust in Christ. When a believer who is convicted of their sins and they want to be forgiven, they want to, they want to be saved, they want to go to heaven, and they turn to Jesus Christ, they call upon the name of the Lord, they ask the Lord to forgive them out of a heart that's been changed by the grace of God. Because repentance and faith are God's gifts. And you turn to Christ and you put all your trust in Him. At that moment, Christ forgives all of your sins. The debt has been paid in full already. And then He gives you His own righteousness. And that's all you need for salvation. The practical righteousness is merely the evidence that all believers should have that their heart has been changed. That their faith is alive. It's not a dead faith. So by way of comparison again, when it comes to salvation or justification, on the reform side, or we could say the biblical side, you're saved by faith alone. 
given Christ's righteousness, imputed to us instantaneously, irrevocably, and were justified at the time of first faith, at the beginning. The Roman Catholic is that you're saved by faith and the sacraments. That's your works. That's your obedience. That's your, what you do in the sacraments. It's you're saved by your personal righteousness. And that includes the righteousness of Christ and the saints that's, that, uh, from this treasury of merit that's given to you. And it be, but it becomes yours personally as you do the sacraments. That's infused to you. It's renewed within you. It's a gradual process. It's irrevoc- it, it is revocable because you can lose your salvation and you're justified at death if you're righteous enough or after purgatory. So whereas we believe that God justifies a sinner, in the Roman Catholic view, God only justifies those who become righteous through virtue of the sacraments. So again, the uh, Roman Catholic Church taught if anyone denies that good works merit an increase of grace and eternal life, let him be anathema. Christ is not sufficient. You merit. Notice what they say. You merit. You earn it. You earn grace and you merit eternal life. And if you say you don't by your good works, then may you be cursed and damned. That's the idea that they're teaching. They do not understand the same concept of the Gospel that the Bible teaches. So basically, you come again to the idea of indulgences. This is the uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, which is, uh, can be helpful their indulgences. And what is an indulgence? It's a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. So you can have your guilt forgiven, but you still have temporal punishments that you've got to suffer for your sins. So an indulgence is created by the church. It's not in the Bible. But they add it that you can do things to earn an indulgence which will decrease the amount of your suffering in purgatory. But something you've got to do. Again, works. Something you have to do. So for example, again, the apostolic constitution of the Roman Catholic Church. The church and the sacred councils condemns with anathema those who maintain the uselessness of indulgences or deny the power of Christ's church to grant them. That's what the reformers were doing. They were... They were denying, the, they, were, they were maintaining the uselessness of indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church says, if you say that, may God curse you. See, they have a different understanding of the gospel. Because you got to, if you want to minimize your time in purgatory, you need indulgences. And you can earn indulgences by doing various good works, by doing various prayers, by engaging in various activities of consecrated behavior, you can earn an indulgence which will limit your time in in purgatory. So the foundation to the doctrine of indulgences is that Christ's sacrifice did not fully pay for our sins. It does not totally satisfy the justice of God. In other words, Christ's death was not sufficient. That's why I say whenever you meet with a Roman Catholic, a friend, you have to assume this is what they've absorbed from the church. Now, hopefully there's some that have a better understanding than this, or they haven't been well taught, so they don't understand. But if they're in it, you kind of have to assume that they've absorbed this whole works mentality of what do I need to get to heaven? Well, I need faith in Christ and I need the sacraments. And it's our responsibility to try to show them from Scripture that that is not the case. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our own righteousness. So Martin Luther, by the grace of God, on October the 31st in the year 1517, nailed those 95 theses, those little doctrinal statements, to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, he was very exercised over this whole this whole unbiblical concept of indulgences. 
That's something you can do or you can pay money and buy an indulgence. That was big in his day. And you can help get someone out of purgatory into heaven faster. And he saw the abuse of that and was so sensitive to it that he included a number of those in his 95 theses to correct the error. So number 27 says it is folly to say that when money rattles in the box, a soul flies out of purgatory. Because remember John Tetzel, who is one of the priests who is out in the countryside around Germany and other places, and they were teaching and selling indulgences for money. So you come up and give money to the church. They will give you a letter, which is an indulgence, says, okay, you're forgiven of all these sins. And it's like, a, again, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And Martin Luther, and kind of the idea was, okay, you give us the money and you release a soul from purgatory. So, And remember, that's what Martin Luther did when he went to Rome and climbed the Scala Sancta to try to get his grandfather out of purgatory by, by earning an indulgence by climbing up all those marble stairs and kissing them and saying the Lord's Prayer on them. Otherwise, John Tetzel says you could just do it by giving money to the church. Number 66, he said indulgences are the nets used to, to fish for men's wealth. It's just the church trying to get rich off of you, in his opinion. Number 32, those who think they are saved by indulgences will go to hell with those who teach them so. Now here's the old Martin Luther we all know. The old bull in the china closet. You know, using this kind of tough language. But he's trying to indicate that if you're putting your trust in an indulgence, look, you're not trusting in Christ alone. Which means you're not saved. You're trusting in the wrong thing. And in 36, he says, true repentance brings an entire forgiveness of the penalty and guilt of sin. It's repentance that saves It's not repentance plus indulgences, repentance plus sacraments. It's Christ and Christ alone. Solus Christus. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. This system of the Roman Catholic Church does not line up with that. And most people that are going to those churches are absorbing this whole idea that for me to get to heaven, I've got to participate in this and do this and do that. In other words, they're not trusting Christ alone. It is a different gospel. Well, by the grace of God, as we read here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, Christ offered one sacrifice for sins to pay the full and complete total penalty for all of our sins is the idea in the context of Hebrews. For all time, never to be repeated again. And then He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That's the Gospel. That's Christ alone. And every sinner that wants to be saved needs to abandon all the man-made add-ons and come back to Jesus Christ and Christ alone to be saved. Dropping down in Hebrews chapter 10. We pick it up in verse 19 because what the author wants his readers to have is a full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Trusting in Christ alone and His sacrifice so that you can have a full assurance of faith. And so he says in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And here he's talking about the new covenant that Christ inaugurated on the cross. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, because we're trusting in Christ and Christ alone who paid the full price for our sins. He completed everything necessary to save us. When we come to Him and receive Him by faith and faith alone, 
then we can have full assurance because I'm not looking to myself because I'm fickle and my life is up and down and I'm struggling with sin. And what kind of assurance of your salvation could you ever have if you're trusting Christ plus anything coming from you? You'll never have full assurance or a deceived one because our own life is not perfect. Our own righteousness is flawed. You can never trust that. But if you're trusting in Christ and His righteousness, that He paid the full debt for all of your sins, then you can have a full assurance as you put your faith and trust in Him. Not Him and you, but in Him and Him alone. That's where the full assurance. Because He's a full Savior. He's a complete Savior. He's a total Savior. And when sinners come to Him, they can find that full assurance of faith because they've been washed by the blood of Christ. That's why when the Lord Jesus on the cross said it is finished, that's exactly what He meant. He didn't say, okay, I've done my part, now you do your part. To try to earn your way to heaven. He said, it is finished. The idea is our debt has been paid in full. There's a perfect tense in Greek. It's a completed past event with ongoing results. Never to be repeated. I've paid the debt. You don't have to pay it. So it'd be like if you, on, on your home mortgage. I won't ask how many of y'all have paid off your home mortgage. But let's, let's assume that you have. And you wrote in the last check and the bank recorded it and they send your letter saying your mortgage is now paid off, you're debt free, no more payments. So how wise, foolish would it be to keep sending in checks when your debt has been paid in full? And Christ said it is finished, which implies that debt has been paid in full. The new covenant was ratified on the cross. Our forgiveness has been accomplished. Our righteousness His righteousness has been given to us. There is no better righteousness. His righteousness is what gets us to heaven, not ours. It is finished. And then God put His stamp of approval on it when Christ died. What did He do inside the temple? This Old Testament system, this this faulty system by design, which was intended not to take away sins, but to point to the Lamb of God who could, And only one man, the high priest, one day out of the year could actually enter into the presence of God. What did God do to the veil? He tore it asunder. Now any sinner has direct access into the very presence of God through the blood of Christ. So God actually puts His stamp upon that. And then He raised Christ from the dead. And He ascended to the Father and is now seated, seated at the Father's right hand. The work has been done. The work has been completed. All we need to do as a sinner to come and put our faith and trust in Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone who saves. I always love Isaiah 53. Whenever I read that chapter, I love verse 11. I love it all. It's a wonderful chapter which is a prophecy of what Christ would do on the cross. He would come and He would bear our sins and He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would suffer and pay the full price for all of our sins. When you come down to verse 11, it says, as a result of the anguish of His soul, the suffering of His soul, the torment of His soul, He will see it. That be the Father will see it and be satisfied. And by His knowledge, the righteous one, My servant, will justify the many and He will bear their iniquities. When the Father saw the sacrifice of Christ and He poured out all of His wrath and judgment and suffering and torment and curse upon the Lamb of God, He absorbed it all. Every last drop. So the Father said, I am satisfied. My wrath is satisfied. My justice is satisfied. My law is satisfied. I am completely satisfied. And when you come to Christ... All of your sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
So the death of Christ is totally sufficient for our salvation. And again, as we sing in that old hymn, as I uh, quoted earlier, that Jesus did pay it all, so that all to Him I owe, for sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. So this is why we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, that the Spirit of God opened up the hearts and the minds of His people to see these glorious truths found in Scripture. To combat the error of the Roman Catholic Church. So that now, understanding the Gospel, we have the privilege and the responsibility with our Catholic friends is to go with them to inquire, what are you trusting in to get to heaven? And hear what they have to say and then share with them that Christ is sufficient. And Christ and Christ alone can save. And by the grace of God, the lights will come on and they'll enter into the family of God. Well, how thankful we are for such a Savior as Jesus Christ. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this Gospel that You've given to us. And Lord, we realize that there are many, many Protestants and many, many Roman Catholics that don't believe this Gospel, that are somehow been drifted off into some form of a works-based salvation which cannot save. And so, Father, we pray that You would help us and make sure that we understand this Gospel. That everyone in this room today understands their sin. And that there is only one Savior who paid the full price on Calvary's cross. And oh God, may You open the hearts of those who have not yet trusted in Christ alone. Give them faith. Draw them by Your Spirit to see their sin and to see Christ in all of His glory and all of His sufficiency that we need nothing but Christ for our eternal salvation and our hope. So Lord, grant them that. And for those of us who by Your grace, Lord, have put our faith in Christ alone, O oh Lord, as we should respond in faith and love and obedience and adoration and worship to Him, O oh God, may the Spirit of God excite those things within our hearts as we glory in His finished work on the cross for us. So Lord, we thank You that by one offering, He has sacrificed Himself for our sins for all time and then sat down at Your right hand as a testimony to the fact that His work was done, that it was completed. And we thank You and praise You for such a Savior as Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.